A former CIA inspector general and the author of books entitled The Great Game, The Myth and Reality of Espionage, and Why Spy, Espionage in an Era of Uncertainty, Fred Hitz is a renowned expert on Edward Snowden. Following his graduation from Princeton University and Harvard Law School, Mr. Hitz worked for the CIA, practiced law, then returned to public service as a congressional liaison with the Departments of State, Defense, and Energy. Currently, Mr. Hitz is a senior lecturer in public policy at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, lecturer at the School of Law, and senior fellow at the Center for National Security at the University of Virginia. It is my pleasure to introduce CIA spy master, Mr. Fred Hitz, to more than the score. Thank you, Cindy. Let me make sure I'm uh, on. Can you hear me? Am I okay? Uh, and thank you all for coming. It's a beautiful day, so I won't keep you out of that sun for very long. Uh, I'm going to lead with my chin. I think Edward Snowden should turn himself in. I think he, would, he made a mistake in a way uh, in not sort of, uh, if he was determined to get this material out, uh, putting it in a situation where it was out, it was unreachable, that's what he wanted to do, but at the same time, he was going to take responsibility for his actions. I think he puts himself in an odd position uh, in exile in Russia. It's occurred to some of us old hands that perhaps his relationship to Putin is more than just as a uh, stopping off place. But that being said, I don't want to say anything that would uh, cast a doubt on the sincerity of his purpose as he sees it. He really did believe, does believe, that the NSA, the National Security Agency, or as we used to say, no such agency, uh, has, has uh, exceeded all bounds in what's uh, uh, being done. And so in that sense, uh, what I, it's, it's incumbent upon me to suggest some other ways he might have gone about it. Number one, he was a lot cleverer than his predecessors, Assange and Manning, in finding a way to get that material out and in such a fashion that it couldn't be stopped. They sort of uh, got it in place before he did his thing. So in that sense, uh, it's been a, a uh, successful outing. But by the same token, if he wants to have a, uh, if he or somebody in his position wants to have maximum impact, there are other ways of doing it than having broken the law and broken his commitment. Now let me say as an aside, I have not been very happy uh, at the large growth of the contractor community in the national security area. You can say because of the strains that 9-11 uh, placed upon the nation, there was no other way to build up and cover all the bases. But as a former career uh, intelligence officer and with my relationships to other shops around Washington that did the same thing. There's nothing like being on the inside. Snowden would say probably to be captured and, and then uh, turned. 
but I would say to fully understand the ramifications of all that is going on. And he clearly is a person of real ability, but he's always been one step away from the font. He uh, was a contractor, as it turned out in the end, in Hawaii. Uh, he began to have second thoughts at the uh, matters that came over his desk, but he had no clear place to go to share, share those concerns. Since that time, since he began his uh, 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 effort, uh, the law has been changed so that there's an intermediate point. Porter Goss, who was chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and a very good one, started a bill moving in the Congress to uh, deal with a specific problem the Congress thought they had. They thought that with the adherence that the executive branch agencies made their employees sign up to that a lot of information might not be getting from the intelligence community or the military to Capitol Hill, to the overseers. And so he didn't want to do anything. None of the Congress wanted to do anything that just cut off the notion of a whistleblower at the knees. But there had to be some kind of intermediate way to make sure one had access to all that was going on, short of making it available to the legislative branch or to all the world. And that's where, and again, you can fault me for being a homie here, but that's where the Office of Inspector General came in. Porter uh, created legislation which later passed, which said if you, an employee of the CIA or the NSA or whatever it may be, feel that something's going on that is uh, outside the realm of propriety or the law, go to the IG. The IG has a dual responsibility, not only to the head of the agency, but also to the President of the United States, uh, in particular, to make sure that uh, things are being done in the appropriate way. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you, that passed uh, uh, shortly after I left government service in 98. I don't know what the, the uh, track record is on that particular device. I can imagine in certain sense, in sec areas it works well, but there would have to be trust in the notion that the inspector general, uh, uh, appointed by the president but uh, confirmed by the Senate, has the capability of uh, sort of standing above the battle in that sense and recognizing when it's time to move. What I don't think is acceptable is what uh, Snowden ended up doing, which is in a protected way, Laura Poitras, Glenn Greenwald, her principal supervisors, they had the material, it was sure to come out, and it did. Uh, Something to, about NSA, National Security Agency, uh, has a storied record in the United States. Uh, before 1952, when it was created as a Defense Department intelligence agency by President Truman, it had existed in the uh, military departments in which its signals collection capability first originated, the Army and the Navy in particular. And if you'll remember, both the Army and the Navy, the Navy in particular, was able to get uh, a remarkable uh, uh, entry into Japanese diplomatic traffic before the uh, onset of World War II. It helped us very greatly. It didn't have uh, access to the diplomatic code yet, 
but it had uh, access to the, to the military traffic. Secondly, with our relationship with the British, and this is a very important thing to note, uh, we were able to get it on the front line of Bletchley Park, and that is that ra remarkable agglomeration of mathematicians and scientists who broke the German code. Uh, they got hold of a, uh, a Polish-made uh, uh, Enigma machine, which uh, they broke down and were able to read ja uh, German military traffic from almost the earliest days of the war. In fact, uh, if you'll remember, in order to get President Roosevelt to step up and do more than just make Lend-Lease sales to the to the British, uh, uh, Bletchley Park was used as the ammunition to show that uh, Hitler's designs were uh, to take over all of Europe. So NSA, uh, the Army Security Agency at the time, the Army uh, uh, cryptographers, uh, was part of that group working on this. It's a long uh, and, and uh, storied history. Since that time, of course, as things have become technologically more complex, and I hope you all have had a chance to look at your New York Times today because there's a piece that suggests that the next wave of uh, machines from Apple uh, uh, are going to be uh, contain codes that not even Apple says it's going to be able to break. So we may have a situation where technologically, whether uh, uh, there's a Snowden or not, we're not going to be able to get into the kind of exchange of, of uh, information which ISIS and, and other groups of the Middle East uh, are capable of doing now. Seems to me that's something that uh, the U.S. government ought to have a, a second crack at. Uh, so NSA is not what uh, is not one of these aggressive, let's try to build up our empire kinds of people, uh, kinds of government agencies, but rather has a phenomenally important and massive job to do. If you'll remember the latest, uh, he's, been, he's retired now, but General Alexander, who was the head of the National Security Agency for a good many years, he said, you talk about needle in a haystack, that's what I spend my entire day, every day, looking for. And they've been quite remarkable uh, uh, in that regard. Important point in that connection also is to notify, and this gives rise to part of the friction that exists between the United States and our European allies in particular. Remember when it was revealed several week, uh, months ago now that we were listening to Angela Merkel's calls on her cell phone. Uh, that seemed a bit extreme, uh, to put it mildly. That has discontinued. And I read also that a lot of the unilateral uh, uh, secret gathering among our European allies has been uh, put on hold for the moment. But the fact of the matter is, from that uh, World War II beginning, and the cooperation with the British in Bletchley Park, and later with the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Canadians in other parts of uh, this hemisphere and in Asia, uh, a tight bound was formed between the communications 
spy agencies of those nations. And that's one of the things, frankly, that the Europeans would like to gain entry to if we're not going to allow them to uh, share our secrets and be part of this operation, then they're going to take a very hostile attitude towards, towards us. So what is the job of, of, uh, of uh, NSA in this post-9-11 world? And let's, not, let's be absolutely clear, that is and should be the driving force we're trying to find out what's going on in the minds of Al-Qaeda, now ISIS, uh, these hostile elements. And the way to do that is to capture their conversations in every way we possibly can. Uh, this first presented itself uh, during the George W. Bush administration, if you'll remember. After 9-11, people started to think, those were attacks mounted by uh, al-Qaeda, but using foreign citizens. For the most part, the muscle hijackers, if you'll remember, uh, were all Saudis. Saudis who had obtained their visas to come to the United States without even at that time having to present themselves to a US embassy. They could get them through travel agents. That no longer exists. But the notion was, if it was uh, going to be a situation where material like this uh, uh, could be exchanged internationally, didn't we have to worry about a situation where Al-Qaeda operatives in Europe, some of whom we had a line on, some of whom we, we suspected, might be trying to engage with American citizens who, are, who were uh, disillusioned? and who might be capable of uh, answering the call. So that's when the program, and the, and the Bush administration, as I say, went forward and did it unilaterally, did it as an executive branch situation with the president ordering it. And that led to a brouhaha with, uh, with Congress so that they attempted to shut it down. What uh, NSA was going to do was to capture the metadata, the person calling the name of the person uh, who received the call, the time of the call, but the substance of the call remaining uh, in the hands of the telephone companies or the other agencies that had uh, uh, allowed the call to happen. That's what the situation is currently, only it's in uh, multiples of uh, instances. It's a lot bigger program than it was going back to those early days. So we are accumulating reams of metadata on the notion that sometime somebody in the Al-Qaeda world, in the hostile world, uh, from outside is going to try to link up with an American. And we want to be able to have a record of that call. So vast, I have a, I have a sort of a, a, a personal interest in it. Our daughter lives in Salt Lake, outside of Salt Lake in the south, and it's down in Provo that this new installation is being put in. We didn't get to see it on the last trip out there, but I'm given to understand it is vast. The capacity to store this material is enormous, but that's what I want to emphasize. It's the capacity to store metadata and the permission to read the substance 
of what is exchanged in those messages. As I say, you've got the person who made the call, the person who received it, and the time. The, the, uh, the ability to read those calls depends upon an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which was a uh, uh, court is, it, uh, glamorizes it a little bit because uh, these are active, federal district judges, presidential appointees uh, 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 confirmed by the Senate, sitting in district courts all over the United States with a requirement that two or three of them be within the Washington, D.C. area so they can be quickly called upon to look at these uh, matters. They do not sit in courtrooms. They sit in, a, in a, uh, what I'm told is a rather exotic but not terribly glamorous a room above the Attorney General's office in the Department of Justice, and they are brought requests by the executive branch saying, we believe that X is a spy. We believe that X is a terrorist. We want to be able to listen to them uh, talk. We want to look at their mail. We want to uh, check them out. And that is brought to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, as the lawyers would say, ex parte. There's nobody representing uh, the person who's going to be tapped. That, of course, should and does give us all uh, a tremor, a moment of concern. But all the court is being asked to do is permit the government on the basis of a suspicion that they have to make out to the court that this individual is a terrorist or a spy uh, the right to listen to these calls. Now that's obviously something that's still very uh, controversial, should be, it has to be uh, checked from time to time. There are in fact some of these judges who are appointed uh, on rotation. They don't, uh, they're, they're, they're picked from sitting federal judges and they will go back to the courts uh, where they'd been appointed and confirmed after service on this court, have refused to serve. They felt that they, in good conscience, couldn't do it. But it's not what you call a just a willy-nilly, open-the-door kind of permission. And that was uh, created in law by Section 215 of the Patriot Act as amended. So if we want to get on top of this, we want to say this is too far, this is too much, then we have a vehicle that we can look at uh, uh, to, to make that change. The problem, that which overwhelmed Snowden, and probably overwhelms uh, a number of you, is the volume of mess messages, admittedly in metadata form, that are being accumulated. And I think we may, say, may see, despite the creation of this new holding facility in Utah, we might see in time a review of whether it's necessary to capture as many of these messages as uh, uh, we are, are doing. Again, as I say, it's just in storage. It's only the metadata that's been obtained. The actual substance of what's being said, the notion of a plot for, a, for a, uh, uh, an assassination or something of that kind, isn't looked into unless there is uh, corroborating, corroborating information from another source. Bottom line, and then I'd like to turn it over to you for your views on this. Uh, one of the things that overwhelmed the 
United States generally, and certainly the government in Washington, in the wake of 9-11, was the enormity of the catastrophe. How many of you in this room have read the 50 pages in the uh, 9-11 Commission report, all of which passed through the tele, to the, through the, the uh, about to say the typewriter, the machine of, of uh, Philip Zellico, a colleague of mine in the history department. It's a marvelous piece to read. You just cannot believe that the United States should have been so nakedly unprepared for this event, where we had to scramble fighters to uh, fly over the national capital region from as far away as Cape Cod, where there were others that couldn't deliver. It was just a situation where Mohammed Atta, I mean, I imagine to hear that recording now uh, makes your, makes your uh, fingers tremble. He, he got on the, got on the uh, uh, line to the control tower in New York saying, we've got a couple of planes, and three minutes later, he'd hit the, the World Trade Center. I have an aside on that. I mean, it was a bluebird day like today. I mean, it was one of those extraordinary breaks in the weather, but you remember, 9-11. It occurred on the 11th of September, which is fog and, and uh, uh, hurricane backlash uh, season in New England. Uh, and Mohammed Atta decided, he was, the, he was the ringleader, that he would get on the, uh, the plane that he was going to uh, kidnap, uh, abduct, uh, take over in Portland. Fly from Portland to Boston because he was of the view that the security in Boston was a lot more complex uh, than in Portland. It may have been. But Portland, Maine in September, when you're making uh, plans for these flights weeks in advance, you're going to get on a plane at 6.30 in the morning and not be fogged in, or in the middle of a northeaster or something of that kind. I mean, everything broke for these terrorists. As you recall, three of the four planes uh, the metal detectors were set off by the muscle hijackers bringing a material on. But the rule of that day was, uh, what I'm saying is the FAA rules with respect to that was, were, and remember we hadn't had any hijackings for a good while, that if the individual whose luggage triggered that uh, uh, metal detector uh, got on the plane and flew, fine, let it go. So there was no notion of a, of a uh, suicide uh, capacity. When I was teaching a course on anti-terrorism at Princeton about four or five years ago, uh, a gentleman called me and said, Fred, i am uh, uh, just moved, I've retired from the FBI, and I've just uh, uh, moved to Princeton. Would you like me to come kibitz in your class? I said, would I? And this gentleman who had, who had succeeded Louis Free from, uh, uh, in, in that interim period had been in, on, on the job uh, at, when 9-11 happened. And they started to look into, uh, investigate uh, how it could have happened. So they called uh, five United 757 pilots into a room and nine uh, and five uh, uh, United Airlines pilots into another room and asked each of these groups, how do you, how do you uh, 
reconstruct in your heads what happened in the cockpits those days. He said, I, we know perfectly well what happened. The protocol was, if a hijacker came in and said it wanted to take over the plane, you gave him the seat. So it wasn't hijackers using uh, 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 box cutters to kill the pilot and haul a, haul a 200 pound person out from behind the, the steering wheel. We gave him to them uh, uh, as a matter of course, because the protocol was they'd have to fly the plane and they'd have to land somewhere and they didn't want to kill themselves. Wrong. So it's a whole new world. And I don't, and I don't say all that to, to, uh, to scare you. I just say that in terms of uh, trying to make book on, get information about this particular situation, we perhaps have, have uh, exceeded the requirements in terms of the volume of information we have gathered, but the need to get it is, is, uh, is clear. And let me conclude by saying, I think all of us know in our heart of hearts that it's always it's possible, even today, for somebody to slip through what has become a much more, a much denser net, so that the next time we have somebody uh, march down to Barracks Road Shopping Center, heaven forfend, with a belt on and blow up uh, uh, a store and, and kill people, we'll, we'll I think, begin to lean on the side of, of uh, uh, these actual protections. Having said that, I think we probably will be able to cut back on the amount of material that, as a matter of course, NSA is collecting. So over to you. Thank you for listening. Um, Fred. You've made the point um, that we have extraordinary technology that we're deploying, but um, my question relates to the human factor. Uh, as you pointed out, um, it a lot depends on protocols and what people are expecting. And we have a tendency as Americans and Westerners to put the rest of the world through our mental filter and our cultural filter. Um, what are we doing, to the extent that you can talk about this, what are we doing to um, escalate the expertise and the uh, infiltration of um, our agents into these other cultures to get a better handle on what might be coming next that we're not going to be able to glean from the technology? Uh, an excellent question, and let me hasten to add, I have no inside information. I've been out of the government since 98, uh, so what you're getting is what I can pick up and, and, and educated guesses. We still have a deficiency of Arabic speakers in our country. It's been pointed out in study after study. The reason is, it's a darn difficult language, and it's a language that varies from country to country, the, the, the Arabic that is spoken on the streets of Cairo is different from that you would find in the streets of Jor in Jordan. Uh, we need to do a better job. We also need a better understanding of uh, the cultural pressures uh, in the region. I hate to tell you, but I go back to a day uh, in my own uh, service where uh, we used to think that the only 
language you used, you needed to speak in, in uh, South Asia and the Middle East was the folding green. And that, of course, has long since disappeared. But what I think you're seeing is uh, increasingly with, uh, with a very tech-savvy people, a determination that this wave is going to try to get back to an Islam, whether it's the correct view of it or not, an Islam that is more grounded, uh, as they uh, would say it, in the thoughts of the prophets, and doesn't really uh, depend upon Western or non-Arabic uh, influences to the extent uh, that they argue the current society does. Whether that's possible at all is, is, is hard for me to gauge. But certainly in order to deal with that, in order to, to be successful in gathering information in that part of the world, you're going to have to have a very strong understanding of what the totems are and what the language is. And your question is excellent because I think we're still struggling in that regard. I won't try to pick them. Sir, recognizing that uh, Mr. Batten and Mr. Jefferson both believed in the fourth estate, do you think that Mr. Greenwall is covered as a journalist? And if not, uh, what are the protections that the country should have for the fourth estate? And as a follow-up question, do you think that members of the fourth estate would be better, the country would be better served if members of the fourth estate served instead of members from the IG office? Finally, I have a question as to respect. Wait, now, wait a minute. You, let me, let, I'm not going to remember all these questions. <laughs> Your question is absolutely superb. I would think that the fourth estate would also feel an obligation with respect to uh, matters of, 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 this, of national security potential for, for, for an outburst that they have to uh, report that to. And I, I frankly, I watched Laura Poitras on the, uh, on the television I watched, I read the part in the New York Times Magazine where she described what she was up to. Greenwald a little less so. It's all very well for them to smile contentedly at the information that's come out, but it's uh, uh, Snowden that's sitting uh, uh, in tenterhooks somewhere in Russia, uh, unable to come home. So I, I guess it's a smart aleck answer perhaps, but I think if, if the... Uh, uh, Fourth Estate uh, felt the heavy breath of uh, uh, America's uh, law enforcement and security officials and felt a need to cooperate in some fashion. Uh, it would be a better thing, but I think those days are a long time coming. My last question is related to FISCA. Yes. The court. How many cases have there been where they turned down the NSA? Well, and I'm glad you asked it because I should, I should have said that in my opening remarks. The answer is very few, but there's a reason. There's a very good reason. And the reason is that because it's an ex-party proceeding, because it's both, both sides of the U.S. government, the judge says to the, to the FBI, the presenting official, the FBI official, the CIA, I can't give you permission on the basis of this. This is thin as all get out. Take it back. I need more information if you want me to sign the, the warrant. That's the way the system works. It's not ad adversarial in that sense. Because the standard is, uh, it, it, is there a likelihood that X, whom we want to tail or, 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 or tap, is the agent of a foreign power or is it, is it not? They're not? In other words, they're not making a decision 
whether they're going to be cited and brought into court on a, on a felony charge. Sir, that's somebody I know. Fred, uh, I don't think that Snowden is going to be captured if he stays where he is now. But let's assume that he uh, finally decides to go to Ecuador um, or Assange gets to Ecuador. I'm recalling that the Israelis snatched uh, Eichmann off the streets in, in Argentina. What's the likelihood that we'll do the same? Well, uh, I'd like to think that were he to leave uh, Russia, there would be an effort to uh, get him back to these shores. Uh, and as I say, uh, what, he's talk what, what we're talking about with respect to, to him, and again, don't get me going on this contractor business, because obviously he's a very gifted person. But he'd been away from the flagpole a long time. Remember, his, his, uh, a, a lot of where, where he was operating from was in Hawaii. The kind of reinforcement of the reasons for what you're doing uh, does help. That's, this is both good news and bad news. If you're the, in the company of those people who have signed the oath and, and, and are, are uh, working around the clock. To answer your question is, should he come to a place where uh, we could nab him, nab him with the help of the local authorities, I would hope we would, because I think we should ask him some additional questions. I've got one over here. Yes, Professor Hitze. Um, I've noticed, as everyone has, I think that the, uh, the tendency for Middle Eastern peoples to have difficulty coalescing into any kind of a united movement. We currently have this ISIL or ISIS, whatever it's called, and it has drawn some people. It's, uh, it's adding a little mass as it grows. What are the chances that that will continue and versus the chances that the strong men who control these populations and have kept them down for generations will get control of the situation once again? I think it's an excellent question, and once again, it's not my area of expertise. I'm working on the same information you're working on. I think there's a tendency to balkanize now, and I think there are different groups, different groups of, of uh, hostels in, in different areas. We're looking now, for example, at what, what's going on in Turkey. It surprises me enormously that Turkey is sort of a co turning a cold shoulder to the, to the blandishments of President Obama and others in the West to get hold of this. They have the most to lose. Their border is absolutely porous. But I guess they've uh, uh, decided, just as you stated, there are too many of them and not enough of us, and they're going to have to cooperate. Think of the Turks and their non-relationship with their own Kurds over a long period of time. It was out of Turkey, after all, that both of these areas of, of uh, uh, real contention uh, was created. Mesopotamia in the case of Iraq, etc., and Syria, Lebanon, which the French took over. Sykes-Picot in 1916 was the treaty that brought that about. So we're really seeing sort of the follow-on to a lot of experiments in the region as to uh, governance, but ones that haven't stuck. And now there seems to be a return uh, to the good book, to, to, to doing it in, a, in, a, in an ancient way, and yet, what's that going to do, for example, to the female populations in these areas? Are they going to go back into the, into the house? What is it going to do to the uh, school-aged children 
who uh, uh, are, are uh, not perhaps going to get the benefit of, of uh, uh, modern schooling. Uh, the, the implications of uh, Syria uh, and uh, Iraq, Mesopotamia becoming horizontal and just uh, uh, fighting continually are very ugly indeed. And I'm not sure that uh, any of us are getting at it by you know, uh, striking the leaders from the air, maybe that's an opening go, but I'm just as reluctant as all of you, uh, I'm sure would be, to, to putting American boots on the ground again because I consider it to be, as you suggest, uh, at this point, uh, a mess, insoluble. Okay. What the lady uh, referred to here with her very insightful question is called human, human intelligence, which you know a whole lot about, Fred, but uh, very difficult to get human in that part of the world because so much of the society is closed. There's so much differential between the, uh, among the cultures there, and uh, we don't have enough Arabic speakers, as you say, and uh, it, it, it's a real, real, real tough nut to crack be so much better if we had a lot more humans than we do that we could uh, rely on, but that's the way it is. But I know that there are people like Eric and me here who have had high-level clearances for many, many years uh, as part of, of the uh, intelligence world, and uh, we all had to sign a document uh, that said we would not divulge secrets of this country uh, without a penalty of $10,000 fine and 10 years in prison. And to do so otherwise is absolutely treason, and that's where Mr. Snowden stands, in my opinion. Uh, Fred, um, so I don't remember the specifics, but there have been instances in front of Congress where uh, heads of intelligence have uh, not exactly been forthcoming on what the NSA was collecting. Uh, Congress is supposed to have oversight on these things. On the other hand, in the era of big data, when technology allows you more and more to look for ever smaller needles in the haystacks, are you confident that we actually have sufficient oversight to balance the need for finding terrorists and so forth and so on with, uh, with, with our freedoms? That's an excellent question, Bob, and the short answer is no. If you will recall that one of the major recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, that report I referred to you earlier, was that the whole business of congressional oversight of the intelligence world was mixed up, screwed up, and needed to be changed, needed to be worked out. Let me tell you the different authorities to whom NSA reports. Obviously, they report, the NSA reports the, the agency itself, and it's enormous. It's an enormous complex, enormously gifted people uh, in Fort Meade to the director of uh, the National Security Agency. And whether you think General Alexander, who'd stayed on too long or not, he was an extraordinarily capable person. But then they go up through that route to the deputy uh, for the Secretary of Defense who's in charge of intelligence programs. That's one. They also go to the director of national intelligence, General Clapper, who is another uh, player. So 
before you even get out of the executive branch, you've got a number of masters, many of whom represent branches of the uniformed military, and they want to make doggone sure, as I would in their shoes, that NSA support, signals intelligence support, exists for their units that are in the field. Lots of masters. After 9-11, lots of money, lots of confusion, lots of misdirection, the direction from the executive branch without knowing the full detail, and this is what Snowden was, was uh, trying to, to point out, had just gone over the top. We were collecting enormous amounts of material, as I say, in this metadata form. We weren't reading all these messages, but we were storing them up five years' worth and eventually going to stick them out in this unit in, in southern Utah. Uh, please don't take my remarks as saying that all of this is justified by the circumstances we find my, ourselves in. But I think what if we want to tailor it back, if we want to cut it back, and I think we do, we want to do it in a systematic and intelligent way so we don't throw the baby out with the bath. And I think it's going to come because we're spending between nine and twelve billion dollars on counterterrorism in the intelligence budget every year. That's a lot of dough. I'm uh, sure that you're aware that ALCU has sent somebody over to interview Snowden in Russia and they have, uh, ASOU has written him up as a hero. How would you address the powers that be at ALCU who uh, has put Snowden on this pedestal? Well, uh, again, I can see we're in a period now where the, the uh, sort of the delight, the, the, the pleasure at knowing what has been revealed in the Snowden revelations is sort of, of uh, overwhelming the second thought of what is it that we have, are giving up? What is it that, that uh, our uh, adversaries are going to be able to glean from this and use against us? I think my answer to that would be, and this came up in an earlier question, Bob's question, I think it's going to be incumbent uh, after this midterm election for the intelligence commi committees to get down to business and look this over. Now, what I didn't finish in saying is, in terms of the NSA's overseers, the Armed Services Committees have a big role. It isn't the Intelligence Committees as such. It's the Armed Services Committee. So you've got an awful lot of people stirring the pot. The Armed Services Committees would insist on a role with NSA because it's through them that the Army has uh, uh, reconnaissance, uh, intelligence capabilities uh, surrounding troops that they send to the field. Obviously, want, they want to know that, that we're collecting everything we can. So I guess if, we're, if what we get out of Snowden is we're spending a heck of a lot of money without any clear advantage, Somebody's going to have to take a look at that problem and sort it through authoritatively. And I don't think I'd leave that to the ACLU. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'd like to get a, a point uh, cleared up uh, with regard to NSA's uh, access to uh, conversations and so forth. Uh, we, we know that NSA records metadata and only accesses communications uh, subject to court order, okay? 
what's not clear to me is whether they actually uh, store the communications without the court order and only access it after they have the court order, or do they only store it after they have obtained the court order? No, I, I think actually, and I could be wrong on this, I think they store the material they collect. And that's the thing that's taking so much space. They've, 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 a lot more uh, entities are up on the, on the airwaves communicating. And so they're collecting that material. Remember, we, we, we looked right after 9-11 and said, holy mackerel, those were all foreigners that were on that pl those planes. What about people in the United States who have uh, pro-Islam uh, views? Are we, have we got any way of finding out what they're up to? That's where, the, that's where this program got started. It was conversations overseas from suspected uh, Al-Qaeda nodes into the United States, people whom we may never have heard of. And we're, we're, we're holding on to that in metadata form until the sheet is filled out a little bit more to determine whether or not these are potentially uh, uh, persons who will act against the interests of the United States. I don't know if that gets at your question, but I don't think, I think there's enough data that they could collect in this metadata form uh, that would be perceived as meeting that requirement without uh, having to add any more. And as, as you suggest, it's an enormous amount of data. So you don't believe that they're, they're recording conversations unless they get a court order based on the analysis of metadata? I, 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 I've, been, I've been around the U.S. government law too long not to say never. But all I can tell you is I don't believe they are supposed to. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 maybe, and maybe that's a good point to bring up because, uh, you know, I would not take Snowden's witness as based on some knowledge of the hostile nature of NSA personnel towards communications. The NSA guys, gals, are doing their job. And sloppiness maybe comes in and, and, and that's an issue. But to be actually listening to conversations that they have no business listening to, uh, they got too damn much else work to do. That's the way I look at it. Yes, yes. it's, it's clear that uh, Mr. Snowden has released classified information, uh, which is illegal based on what he's signed and so exactly. on and so Exactly, what, what, what he agreed to when he went, <clears throat> went so to. So my question is, the people that now have the information and are releasing it with, uh, it seems like impunity, uh, what happens or is there anything that, you know, what's to stop them from continuing to release highly classified information? And if they do, I mean, what do we do, I mean, what do, we do you, about you, that? You, you mean the people that will have read the stories that came from the material that he took, that well, kind he, of he's, thing? Well, as you said, he's prepositioned this information and they're right. going through it and, and then releasing, printing it in the news. Right. right. As it, 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 so, it, so... It's clear if he would do that, he'd be, you know, right in jail. They're not. Sounds, Why sounds, is that? Sounds to me like you're going after the fourth estate again. And I think you have a good point. And the answer is, uh, until I see a, 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 a law case brought against Greenwald or the Poitras, uh, the answer to your question would have to be they've, 
they've uh, gotten away with stolen goods, so to speak. And so there's no legal yes, there is, uh, and I'm so we we, we do we do, and I don't. Uh, so that's my answer to your question is incomplete. I don't know why that isn't on that particular, in that particular rubric, to permit. Uh, uh, and maybe 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 what happens is uh, uh, Poitras and Greenwald have positioned themselves as uh, facilitators rather than than manipulators of the stuff. Yeah, well, I'm stumped. I think I have the next question. Um, I was um, I, you caught my attention with your opening remarks um, about Snowden being captured and turned. And I was wondering if you would elaborate on what you meant when you were alluding to his relationship with Putin. Uh, I was being a smart aleck. <laughs> it strikes me as a little bit uh, coincidental that from Hong Kong, he just found his way to Moscow. And uh, then his time uh, uh, ran out on the temporary visa that he had sitting in the airport. And he's there on a longer term. Uh, I think there are a lot of things we don't know about Mr. Snowden, but he's there and not in the Ecuadorian embassy. And you know, it's always possible. He's, 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 a, he's a real uh, running sore as far as the U.S. government is concerned. We'd like to get him back. And Putin says, you ain't going to get him back. You don't have to. I, if I, 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 I haven't got enough to go on. I, 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 it is possible that as he became more disillusioned with uh, the way the United States was running its business, that he turned to somebody like Putin. But I have no evidence of it. It just stinks. Professor Hitt, at the outset, you advised Edward Snowden to turn himself in. And I think there's compelling legal reasons for him not to do so, not to accept your advice. The reason being that as the law is currently written, he cannot mount an exigency or motive defense. And clearly, as this gentleman said, he's violated law. So the only defense he could possibly make would be it's, it's exigent. He was made violating the law to prevent something worse from happening. If he's, am I correct? Is he not allowed to mount the defense? And he faces certain guilt here. Yeah. It's a good point, the technicality. I think uh, he'd have to, as I say, I put it in terms of throwing himself on the mercy of the court, and it's too late now. There ain't no mercy. And, uh, uh, but, but the point being that he'd, he'd make out a case that uh, what's going on in his view was uh, a tremendous waste of money, uh, a horrific uh, misapplication of resources, unnecessary, uh, uh, blah, 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 and maybe there would be uh, some sympathy. I think he's missed that opportunity. As I said, what I really thought uh, might have been uh, the best route was to go to his NSAIG, somebody in the, in, the, uh, in the building, so to speak, and say, you know, this is just ridiculous. I work on this. We're collecting stuff that is just so far away from the goal that we originally set. We're wasting money and blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, skeptics will come back and say, and the, and the, and the, uh, say well, the IG says, you're, you know, you're just having a bad day, Buster. Go back to the, to the ranks. But I would like to have seen that kind of action taken before he gave it to the press. 
And, and, and uh, I would suspect were he to be tried, there would have to be some indication that there was a consequence, uh, a, a harmful consequence to the, to the uh, information he actually revealed rather than the fact of. Remember, he's just saying we're collecting you know, mountain loads of this metadata material. It's terribly expensive to do it, and it just doesn't make any sense. That in itself is not, uh, yes, it harms the national interest, I should suppose, uh, for it to come out that way, but, it, but it, it, isn't, it, it isn't as if he were saying, and you know, there's Joe Blow in that particular country, and this is what he's doing. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to think, I was just trying to think with your help of would it be possible for him to have uh, recognized this anguish that he felt at, at collecting too much in a way that was legitimate and positive rather than just throwing it in the press. Because NSA, I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think NSA's uh, take here, how much they're going to do is going to have to be reviewed. It's too darned expensive for what they're getting. And maybe that'll happen in the fullness of time. But you and I both know it's unlikely to happen if tomorrow, heaven forfend, we're hit by a, another uh, terrorist tragedy. That's the, that's the world we live in, sadly. And as I say, you saw in the New York Times today, uh, Apple is going to create an iPhone that can't be bugged, period. First, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to address all our uh, lifetime learners here today. Uh, you just now hit upon my question, and that was uh, our Apple Corporation's decision to make the new iPhone 6, which is sold all over the world to millions of people in many countries with various interests in this whole situation, to encrypt uh, the data that flows over those phones. Do you have an initial uh, sort of impression or feeling in your mind as to how this is going to change the whole uh, meta and other data accumulation? It's really... Something. At the very least, it's going to co complicate it enormously because we have already know that uh, these terrorist groups are quite skilled at using cell phones, all of these uh, things. So it's just another... Uh, issue out there where we're going to be uh, hard-pressed. But you and I both know what Apple would say to that. If we don't sell it to them, then the Japanese or, 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 uh, or, or the Europeans are going to sell them phones that they can't break. Rock in a hard place, I'd say, but I hate to see them doing that. It does, however, illustrate the fact that uh, gaining and holding information in this era is... Uh, a tough job. And it gets back to what we said earlier. We've got to find ways to manage these frustrations in the Middle East so that uh, they aren't directed towards us or towards the West and we can, we can coexist. But it's pretty tough when you've got uh, a group that's uh, moving in the direction they appear to be moving now, which is, you know, grab a hostage and cut their throat. We've got time for two more questions. Um, yeah, thank you. Very interesting talk today. I, I was wondering if you could talk more, though, about the sort of the broader con the constitutional context that I think Snowden perceived that he was acting in, in that the 
I can't remember the name of the other fellow. There was someone named Drake who was a career right. CIA. Yeah. And there, my understanding of Tom Drake. Tom Drake. Okay. And Tom Drake, I got involved in that case a little bit. Let me ask you. Let me just clear that up. Tom Drake was in a different situation. He was whistleblowing on a procurement that uh, NSA had made. And really, it turned out they shouldn't have made it. It didn't make any sense in a business way, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't selling secrets to a foreign government. Indeed, he was acting for you and me, the taxpayers, and trying to save dough. And he was badly roughed up. And of course, that's the, that's the trouble. If you build a mechanism where communication with the outside is the rare exception and not the rule, people aren't used to, you know, well, uh, having tolerance for that sort of thing. But I don't think we're seeing that in, in, in the Snowden case because the system he's put up to get this information out is, is, is a lot more extensive. He's no, had helpers. No, the different, but I mean, the, my understanding of Drake and the other fellow is that they did, they were career CIA or, or intelligence no, career, people. Career, career, NSA. NSA. Yeah. And they did go through the chain of command yes, they, they to report their, you know, their fears that there were abuses going on. Right. And we, were, they were, we, we were buying something we didn't need to buy. Right. But, I mean, but aside, aside from the nature of it, though, but when they went through the chain of command, their careers were destroyed and they weren't listened to. Yeah. And then the second, I guess... And so but, your, but, po your, your point very, very uh, accurately is to say if somebody knows about a Drake case and is thinking about going to the IG and this is what happens, they're going to think again. Well, it's kind and of a... That's unfortunate. Well, kind of a two-part, that my understanding of Snowden's motivation and context was that he had seen these fellow intelligence officers try and go through the chain of command and were ignored and destroyed, their, their careers destroyed. And then he had also seen, whether it was Alexander or Clapper, you know, I don't remember the other fellow's comment, uh, not been completely forthcoming uh, to the congressional oversight. I mean, generally conceded that they lied to Congress. So I think my perception of Snowden was that he felt like the normal courses of action open to him really were precluded. And if the, United, if the intelligence community really was greatly overstepping constitutional uh, boundaries, it, it's unclear to me what, what alternative someone in well, his position would have done. Well, I, I'd say on your last point, maybe overstepping congressional boundaries, but spending more money than we had to in this particular thing. Wasting. No, I, I, it's not about money. Well, if it's metadata, I might have an argument with you. If you have metadata and you don't have access to the, abs uh, the substance of what's being said, unless you've got a cause and unless you've gone through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, I think that's uh, slightly different. But I think your point is, 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 is a good one in this sense. He was too far at the end of the pipeline for a guy that was as able as he. A contractor in Hawaii, that's a long ways from uh, uh, Maryland, uh, Fort Meade. And, and, and number one, uh, any of his colleagues who saw him getting restive about matters of this kind should have said, we've got to find a way to talk to Snowden, find out what his beef is, uh, see if there, there's an answer to it. Because he obviously got alienated. And what I think we'll find is that he came into the hands of these aggressive reporters who egged him on to go. And uh, he went, and he's now in Moscow, and they're sitting in their, their editorial offices smiling broadly as they see what they've uh, 
unleashed on the world. I don't particularly like that. Got time for one more question? See, I tend to filibuster, don't I? Yeah. Professor, Sorry. thank you very much for uh, speaking with us today. And I think you've just hit the tip of an iceberg in terms of the collection of data because there are many other types of data such as email data, cell phone triangulation data, and uh, many, many other forms that may or may not be collected by the NSA. I think there are some court cases pending on it. And I don't know what's being collected, and I don't think the American people know or will be allowed to know what kind of data is being collected uh, anywhere from uh, highway police uh, license plate recognition data uh, and all other kinds of locator data that may be centralized and whether this is worthwhile is conjectural but I think uh, it's worth discussing. But my question was that uh, recently the New York Times had an article by James Banford on the uh, acquisition by a foreign intelligence service of unminimized data from the NSA which uh, purported to contain content and uh, possibly content uh, of people who weren't necessarily uh, being surveilled under the authorization of the intelligence court. So I wonder if you could, uh, if you're familiar with that article and whether you could comment at all on uh, its nature. I saw it uh, it didn't surprise me in the sense that, you know, things can get out of the loop. Uh, it's the kind of thing that ought to be looked at very hard by uh, NSA in, their, in the IG office and also by the Hill uh, to determine whether or not this was out of bounds. But you're right, you're playing with fire in this area. And yet uh, on, uh, uh, the safeguards are, for the most part, uh, hard-working people who know what their jobs are and, and don't want to, uh, uh, wouldn't be tempted to go, go across the line. That having been said, what Snowden's talking about when you cut it right down to the base is we're spending too darn much money on this. And we're, 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 uh, uh, we've, we've been given a fat hog and we're, we're, uh, we're not exercising any discipline and restraint in what it is that we're going after on the basis of what we need to know. At least I would like to think that's what his, his view is. And it just seems to me a shame that he had to go out in this fashion to, to do it because the danger is that on the rebound, uh, they'll throw the baby out with a bath. Uh, that's the way America works. You know, We lurch to one side and then we lurch back. And one hoped that the oversight committees would help with that, that they would have uh, jumped into it. And, uh, well, let, 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 this, and we'll end on this. It's a very sad note, but it's, a, it's, it's one that's coming down the pike. We have yet to read the Senate Select Committee report on CIA hostile interrogations. Will you read that one? It's going to curl your hair. I can just smell it. We've never been... Uh, the agency has never, we, we, we haven't been in the interrogation business since the Vietnam War. We were, we were going out for two-week periods of training to learn how to interrogate, and I'm sure we did some awful things. And that's going to be out there when they release that report after the election. And it's just, it's a shame. You sigh, but uh, uh, S happens, as they say. And on, and on that note, you... you, you
Thank you all so much for coming today, and thank you, Professor Fred Hitz, for a great talk. On behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, I want to give you a little gift and thank say you. thank you so much. There are books for Go sale. Go Hoos!